Well, good morning. Uh, first of all, good morning to our live studio audience uh, and also to those of you playing at home. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. And I want to begin this morning just by reading verses 36 to 46. So if you have a Bible, let's turn there now and you can follow along. This is what it says. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it was in 1975 that a rock band named Queen gave us one of the greatest songs that uh, we have treasured over many generations. But it's a song that, on the one hand, we absolutely love it. It's something of an anthem in Australian culture. But on the other hand, I think even now we're still trying to figure out what to do with it. Uh, it's a song by the title of Bohemian Rhapsody. And it's kind of weird because it starts off as this kind of sobering, dirge-ish, lament, soft rock song. And then about halfway through the song, you get this weird interruption. You get this mood shift that's brought about by a change in genre. The song basically goes from rock to opera. You know, I see a little silhouette of a man, scaramouche, scaramouche, can you do the fandango? And you're just going, I'm sorry, what, what happened to the rock song? Um, who turned the opera on? Did someone like accidentally press skip on their Spotify account? Like, what's going on here? There's been a curious mood shift. And in a similar manner, as we look through Matthew's gospel, as he's portraying Jesus's life for us, we see for the first 25 chapters that Jesus is portrayed undoubtedly as the king. In Matthew 1, it begins with a genealogy where we see that Jesus is the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. We see him binding Satan during his temptation in the wilderness. We see him casting out demons, healing the sick, stopping storms. He commissions his apostles for ministry. He confronts these religious leaders who had brought about so much corruption. Jesus is clearly the king. And we get this climactic moment in Matthew 17 that we often refer to as the transfiguration. And I just want to read it for you this morning, just so we can see the contrast between Matthew 17 and Matthew 26. And it says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, 
Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. You see, it's moments like this and many others in Matthew's gospel where we see that Jesus is the king. And yet, when we get to chapter 26, Jesus is once again atop a mountain. He's called his three innermost disciples to himself in Peter, James and John to accompany him. But now he's not his usual triumphant self. You see, where the transfiguration highlighted the deity of Christ, Gethsemane puts his humanity on full display. And Jesus, the Lord of glory, is in deep agony. Now that word agony, I'm sure, is very apparent for each of us right now, given our current cultural moment. Last I checked in Queensland, um, we're just under the 500 mark for the number of confirmed cases of coronavirus and they're telling us it hasn't even reached its peak right now. And then I'm sure for many of us, the economic ramifications are already beginning to hit home. I know they hit my family this week. But there's a sense in which, if, perhaps if you're like me, I'm, I'm a little bit sick of the data coming in. It's, it's getting a bit overwhelming. As someone I heard say last week, we're experiencing as much of an infodemic as we are a pandemic. And so I'm... I'm rather exhausted by all this data getting regurgitated at us. And so what I want to do this morning instead is to, as we approach both the holiday of Easter, just around the corner, but also as we approach what is probably the pending agony that will reach each of our doorsteps, I want us to do something different this morning. I want us to ascend the hill of Gethsemane. N.T. Wright said it this way says that when we ourselves find the ground giving way beneath our feet, as sooner or later we shall, Gethsemane is where to go. That is where we find that the Lord of the world, the one to whom is now committed all authority, has been there before us. So let's do that this morning. Let's ascend the hill of Gethsemane. And as we do, there's just two things I want us to see this morning. I want us to see that there is an anchor, an anchor that we can hang our faith on at the moment, something we can marvel at. But then there's also an admonition, something that regrettably we have to mourn. So firstly, the anchor. Uh, I've had the pleasure of studying a fair bit of church history to date. Uh, I find it to be something of a hobby horse of mine. There's probably eschatology and church history would be my top two. Uh, So you'll often catch me on a day off uh, down at a cafe getting my favorite smoothie, reading a little bit of church history or historical theology. And one of the things that I find somewhere between sobering and fascinating is seeing the famous last words of many Christian martyrs who have gone before us. Those times in history where men and women, uh, our brothers and sisters in the faith, have been threatened with death and they've faced death with such boldness. We we just find it completely inexplainable. How How is it that they're doing what they're doing? And some of the famous last words really capture me, if I'm honest. I I think, for example, of Hugh Latimer, uh, who was an English reformer during the, well, yeah, the English Reformation. And him and his friend, Nicholas Ridley, were sentenced to death at the stake for um, upholding their Protestant views. 
And uh, in their final moments, Latimer cried out to Ridley. He said, be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. Those are his famous last words. Or think of Polycarp in the second century, who was also sentenced to death, and he could have escaped his execution had he have denied Christ. But this is what he said instead of denying Christ. He said these words. He says, 80 and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? And Polycarp went to his death. And then, of course, there's John Huss, who in the 15th century, uh, so the story goes, just before he was burnt, we're told that um, he uttered these words. He said, Today you are burning a goose. However, a hundred years from now, you will be able to hear a swan sing. You will not burn it. You will have to listen to him. And many believe that the, the swan that he said would come after him was a man by the name of Martin Luther, who, of course, started the Protestant Reformation. You see, there is some incredible, famous last words on the lips of the martyrs as they face impending deaths. And Matthew Henry actually comments on this phenomenon. This is what he says. He says, It is true, the martyrs that have suffered for Christ have entertained the greatest torments and the most terrible deaths. Without any such sorrow and consternation, they have called their prisons their delectable orchards and a bed of flames, a bed of roses. On the saint's cross, there is a blessing pronounced, which enables them to rejoice under it. But to Christ's cross, there was a curse annexed, which made him sorrowful and very heavy under it. And his sorrow under the cross was the foundation of their joy under it. You see, throughout history, as we've seen, these saints were given just the most incredible dosage of grace to face death with the most incredible boldness that you and I probably don't even have a category for. But how do we find Jesus here? This is the King, the Lord of glory. And his words are these. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Basically, Jesus is saying he's experiencing agony and it's no ordinary level of agony. This is agony unto death. It's the kind of thing that could threaten his very life. And if that language doesn't grip you enough, look what he says next. He says, remain here and watch with me. You hear that? Jesus, the king, is asking his disciples for help. These disciples, for the last three years they've been hanging out with Jesus, had asked Jesus for help on a number of occasions, and you cannot blame them. But now Jesus is asking them for help. Just, just wrestle with that for a moment. Imagine being there in the garden. You, you feel a tug on your arm and you think, oh, who, who's this? It's Jesus. And he's, his breathing rate's really, really quick. He's, you can almost hear his heart beating. And Luke's gospel tells us that he's at this moment sweating blood, which is actually a very rare medical condition called hematidrosis, which doctors tell us is when you're blood vessels that supply the sweat glands rupture and you end up sweating blood and it's only caused by the most extreme physical and emotional stress that's what jesus is experiencing as he faces death as uh, doug o'donnell put it it's um it's like superman having kryptonite tied around his neck 
That's what Jesus is appearing to us like in this moment. So he's, he's asking for help from his fishermen friends. He's sweating blood. And then we're told next that he fell on his face and prayed. This is not a gentle kneel by the bed at night. This is our Lord lying prostrate before his father. Jesus is in agony. And it begs the question, why? Like, why is the Lord of glory in such a terrible state in these dying moments? Why isn't Jesus like any other martyr that we're familiar with from church history? Well, what Matthew shows us is that Jesus' dread and agony is centered on just one thing. And it's what verse 39 describes as the cup. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard the cup mentioned. In fact, in in Matthew chapter 20, we have two of Jesus' disciples um, who are a little bit too scared to ask. So they get their mother to ask on their behalf, which is really lame. And they say, Lord, we would love to sit at places of honor in your kingdom. And they're asking this via their mother. And Jesus, I guess he would have paused at that moment. And this is how he responds. He says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And then the disciples give the really naive answer. Yeah, we're able. We can do that. See, a few years ago, I used to play a fair bit of ice hockey, one of my favorite pastimes. I really miss it a lot. I wish I could still play. Um, Now, let me just start off by saying I'm not Sidney Crosby. Uh, I'm not Wayne Gretzky. I could not have made a professional career out of hockey, not even in a semi-professional sense, but um, I'm pretty quick on the ice. There's not a lot of people who can catch me. In fact, I've got Canadian mates who grew up on the ice and they'll say things like, dude, you skate like a demon, hey? So I've got some Canadian backup to say that I'm pretty quick on the ice. There aren't too many people who can catch me. Um, but people knew that this was a hobby of mine. They'd be like, oh, ice hockey, that's a, that's a cool sport to be playing in Australia. I didn't even know we had any of that going on here. That's awesome. I'll have to, I'll have to come skating with you sometime and, hey, maybe we could race. <laughs> and they'd say, maybe we could race. Now, I may not have said it, but I'd be like, <laughs> you do not know the cup you're about to drink. <laughs> You do not know what you're asking, race. There's not going to be a race. Do you think you're going to get a pair of like hired skates that haven't seen the sharpener in years and you're going to lace them up and we're going to race, as you say? Um, now, what does that reveal other than my huge ego? Um, you see, the disciples had a similar misunderstanding. They thought that the cup they were going to drink was some sort of cup of blessing that they would sit in a seat of honor in the kingdom. But Jesus knows something about this cup that they don't, that it is in fact actually a cup, not of blessing, but of wrath. In Isaiah 51, 17, it says this, and these are fearsome words. It says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. You see, throughout the Old Testament, especially in in the major prophets, this is imagery, this is symbolism that's often utilized to symbolize the judgment and wrath of Almighty God. And it's it's fearsome to read. I mean, just uh, last week I was reading in Jeremiah 25, just in devotions. Here's what God said at one point to his own people, Israel. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
drink, be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. You see, what Jesus was peering into that night, what he was anticipating, what what he was just immensely struck down with was the fact that the next day he would have to face the full wrath of God. You see, he had known that this moment was approaching for some time now, but as he got closer to his humiliation, as he, as he got closer to his execution, he peered into this cup and our Lord was horrified. And there is nothing, nothing, even, even remotely close in our experiences to what Jesus suffered on this particular night. Not by a long shot can we say we can identify with Christ in this moment. And the reason is, is that he was about to taste something that he'd never even had a sip of for his entire life. I love the way Alfred Edersheim put it. He says, Yet to fallen man, death is not by any means fully death. For he is born with the taste of it in his soul. Not so Christ. It was the unfallen man dying. It was he who had no experience of it tasting death and that not for himself but for every man emptying the cup to its bitter dregs no one as he would know what death was no one could taste its bitterness as he what's what's edersheim getting at there he's basically pointing us back to genesis where we get that covenantal curse warning that says hey if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will surely die You see, ever since the fall, mankind has suffered sin, decay, and death. And we've been in hostility with God ever since. And it's something that we're born into. We are totally depraved from birth. You could say that each of us is born with the taste of death in our mouth. But Jesus wasn't born into sin. Jesus had never tasted death before. He had only ever known perfect union with his Father. He knew it in eternity past. And he'd known it for the 33 years that he'd walked the earth. You see, crucifixion, Roman crucifixion, was a death, physically speaking, of suffocation. But that's not really what Jesus was dreading. For Jesus, crucifixion was not only a death of suffocation, it was a death of separation. Separation from his father. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the first and most important thing we need to do this morning as we ascend the hill of Gethsemane, the most important practical application for us, especially at a time like this, is to look to Jesus. See what lengths he went to to purchase our freedom. This is the king of glory preparing to drink a cup of wrath that you and I deserve to drink. It should have been us. You see, if it hasn't happened already, and I'm sure it will, given what's probably coming over these next six months as this pandemic spreads, people are going to ask that age-old question, how can a good, loving God allow suffering and evil? And I'm sure we've all asked that question before, and I'm sure many of us are tempted to even ask it today. 
You see, when life brings you to the end of yourself, this is often where we go. This is the question we want to ask. And for many people, it's a stumbling block for faith in the first place. Now, my purpose today is not to try and answer that question philosophically and cosmologically. And there's a lot of great arguments that can be had there, some more helpful than others. But one of our chief responses is simply to say, let's ascend the hill of Gethsemane. Let's look to Gethsemane. Let's look to the cross. You see, at the heart of the Bible is a God who unjustly suffers to rescue those who deserve nothing more than damnation. Now, despite the fact that that's true, it's not exactly a handkerchief. Imagine going up to someone whose world is breaking down right now and just reminding them, well, you deserve worse anyway. You deserve damnation. It's not exactly a handkerchief that I would want to utilize at this point. But having said that, it is one of the cornerstones, one of the pillars of our faith. And at a time when people's worlds are breaking down, yes, we're going to have to reach into the box of Kleenex and hand them a tissue, offer them a shoulder to cry on, and often just offer them our silence because they're in so much pain and trauma, they're going to need a listening ear. But at the same time, people are about to find out that the world that they thought that was built on rock is actually built on sand. They're about to find out that their interpretive grid didn't have the categories for a pandemic and now their entire worldview is just getting shaken. So yes, we've got some tears that we'll need to respond to, but at the same time, we've got some repairing work to do. And one of the things we may have to repair is the interpretive grid, those foundational stones that say, at the end of the day, the fact that we have ever experienced any good, the fact that we have air in our lungs, the fact that he is so merciful in his long delay of his return... <laughs> is nothing but sheer grace. And none of us has suffered as unjustly as Jesus did. It's not a handkerchief, but it's an anchor. And we need to be reminded of that in this season. But as we marvel at Jesus here, he also gives us something to model. If, if we want to learn how to pray, yeah, we've got Matthew 6, absolutely, but we've also got Gethsemane. And what's incredible is as you move through this passage, you see this balance of both reluctance and resolve coming through Jesus's prayers. It's, it's incredible to see his humanity on display. And it's incredible. He can both honestly plead his cause and just be really vulnerable with his father. And then at the same time, maintain perfect submission. Look at uh, verse 39 with me. It says, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What's Jesus saying there? He's basically saying to his father, Father, does this have to happen? Do I have to go through with this? I mean, I will do it if I must, but is there another way? He peered into this cup and he was horrified. That's the reluctance. But then in verse 42 with his second prayer, here is resolve. He says, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. You see, as he continues to pray, as he presses in, in the intimate relationship with the one he calls my father, he realizes that there's no other way and he's resolved that he must go to the cross. Hebrews 5 uh, verses 7 and 8 puts it this way. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. 
and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, when we say that Jesus learnt obedience, it's not to say that he was ever disobedient and then he kind of graduated himself into obedience. That's total heresy. That's not what we're saying. But in as much as Jesus was truly man, he models for us how we can learn obedience through what we suffer. There's a sense in which although we're not sipping the cup that Jesus is sipping, we can model his prayer here to his Father. This is what Hebrews 4.15 is getting at when it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in the coming six months, when we're, when we're tempted, to, tempted to question the goodness and kindness and mercy and grace of God, let's be a people who often ascend the hill of Gethsemane. Let's look to the cross. As Charles Spurgeon said it, he said, The whole punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When he put it to his own lips, it was so bitter he well nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both his hands and at one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry. That's what Jesus did. He drank damnation dry. And over the coming six months, we'll need to ponder that. So that's the anchor. And now for the admonition. Something in this text that, regrettably, we must mourn and learn from. Let's go to uh, verse 40. It says, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, if you're familiar with the Apostle Peter up to this point, you'll know that he has a particularly willing spirit. In fact, I'm quite convinced someone could do a PhD thesis on the dumb things the Apostle Peter said. Now, they're probably not going to get it through an ethics committee. I I acknowledge that, but I'll tell you, there would be plenty of material to work with. I think you'd get your 100,000 word count without even blinking. Um, But despite the fact that I think that's true, let's limit our search just to Matthew 26 for a moment and look at the verses just above our text today. Verses 31 to 35. This is what it says. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, You ready for this? Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now those are pretty bold words, right? Like that's kind of William Wallace kind of language. This is incredible boldness from Peter. But then what happens in the next scene that we read earlier? Jesus is in his greatest moment of agony. And where's Peter? He's asleep. That's where Peter is. After these bold declarations, he's snoring while Jesus pours out his soul. And Jesus responds to Peter, Hey, Peter, watch and pray, lest you may enter into temptation. And 
Jesus is effectively saying to him, hey, Peter, you're, you're always the first to speak up. Now I need you to be the first to listen. Watch and pray, Peter. You see, although these words kind of serve as a general principle for all of us, and we're going to get to that in a moment, what, just think about what those words would have meant for Peter in that moment, in that context. Peter is about to face the most intense temptation he has ever faced. I mean, he's about to have a mob approach him, Jesus, and the fellow disciples. That's one form of temptation. We know later he's going to be interrogated about his allegiance to Jesus, which he subsequently fails. Peter's about to face the highest level of temptation he's ever faced. And what's he doing? He's sleeping. You see, instead of moving towards prayer and accompanying Jesus and receiving the divine strength from his father the same way Jesus needed strength from his father, Peter instead operates out of presumption and prayerless zeal. And we see that play out in the next scene, don't we? Instead of knowing that Jesus had to be arrested, Peter wants to fight back. And instead of taking up his cross, he takes up his sword. You see, um, I, I can't help but wonder, as I, as I read Matthew 26, what, what could have looked different about these scenes if Peter had have prayed for an hour or so with Jesus? I mean, we, we can't know for sure. And yes, there's other factors at play. He had a false view of the Messiah. That, um, there's, there's a fair bit going on, but just peering through the lens of human responsibility for a moment, what would have this evening have looked like for Peter if he had have paused and spent that hour praying with Jesus? I mean, maybe he wouldn't have denied him. Maybe he wouldn't have picked up his sword. I mean, yes, there's other factors at play. He, he had a false view of the Messiah and it'd be more complicated than that. But for us, there's a lesson to be had there. I mean, what's the difference between how we will operate when we're operating out of, operating out of presumption versus prayer? You know, there's a lot of really um, healthy Christian energy in the air at the moment. There's some incredible stuff being put up on Facebook and it's applaudable, it's historically rich, it's biblical, and I'm genuinely excited because I agree with it all. As Pastor Peter said last week, this truly is our moment and we need to um, be fruitful with the moment that we've been given. But um, we also need to watch and pray. You see, I agree, this could be a time where our spiritual disciplines really grow. This could be a time when we find ourselves isolated in our home where we might be able to push into prayer more. We, we might be able to open up the Bible more frequently and dig deeper into God's Word. We might have better spiritual disciplines. We might be able to disciple our children perhaps better than we have been. We might change up our habits. I mean, this could cause all sorts of revival amongst God's people. It could reform the church. I mean, this could be incredible. Um, and historically, that's, that's what happens during times of calamity. But I think amidst all of that, we also need to say, watch and pray. You see, we could develop better spiritual disciplines, but this is also fertile ground in isolation or we could easily develop an addiction. Even for me in this last fortnight, uh, Alice and I are coming up on a year for our uh, wedding anniversary and we've still got some of our wedding cake, or we did, uh, in the freezer. And over the last fortnight or so, we've been enjoying that. But um, let me tell you, over the last fortnight, I've, I've caught myself out. I've, uh, instead of praying my father, I've been praying my fridge. Often in the stress of what's been a crazy fortnight of trying to figure out how do we do church online and have they moved the goalposts again with our isolation restrictions and what numbers can we gather in and preparing sermons. And it's been a bit frantic. And a few times I've 
reached out to wedding cake before Jesus. <laughs> I need to watch and pray. You see, Alice and I, we were praying about this the other night. And one of the things I, have to, I had to re- repent of over the last fortnight is that I've been operating out of presumption and prayerless zeal. You see, I'm getting really excited. Like church history nerd, I declared that at the start. Right? I'm like, this is incredible. We'll be just like the early church, suffering under some form of persecution or famine. We're basically going to be the new Puritans. We're going to reform the church. I'm really excited. But um, that's not prayer. That's uh, a zeal, but it's not watching and praying. You see, we will not default into some kind of monastic holiness by sheer virtue of the fact that we're isolated at home. The exact opposite could happen. We might develop an eating disorder or an online gambling addiction. There's a lot of things that could happen over these next six months. We need to watch and pray. This could be a time of revival, but it's also a time where we're going to be very vulnerable. As Leon Morris put it, he said, a willing spirit is not enough. It must be supplemented by prevailing prayer. So over this next six, over this next six months and throughout the course of our lives, let's not, let's not be a people who descend into presumption. Let's be a people who watch and pray.